This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Christy Schreiber, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Schreiber, and this is the How to Love It podcast. This is the fourth episode in our series on Jonathan Swift and his satirical travel log, known as Gulliver's Travels. I mean, in episode one, we introduced Swift. In episode two, we got to know fairly well our narrator, the gullible but generally good Lemuel Gulliver. We followed his journey into Lilliput, where the tallest inhabitants are six inches tall. We accompanied him as he served the Lilliputians in their war against the Blue Fiskewans. Lilliputians. Oh. <laughs> I love saying that. Yes. Uh, Gulliver left Lilliput upon threat of having his eyes poked out for treason and returned home with several cute and tiny souvenirs from his trip. In episode two, uh, Gulliver leaves home again for a second voyage. This time he is abandoned on the shores of a country where he is the small one. It is a land of gentle giants. However, he is constantly under threat of death, no fault of his own or anyone else's. He's just that small, and his view of things is magnified because of his minuscule size. I feel like my view of things is magnified (laughs) because of my minimum size. Well, eventually a bird carries him away, and he's found and rescued. Which brings us to today, where we embark on his third journey. This journey, historically, has been the one that we skip over. I've been guilty myself. One reason is that it's episodic. In other words, it's not, I mean, it's in episodes. It doesn't have a unifying plot line. Gulliver first arrives at this flying island called Laputa. Then he drops down to Balna Barbie. Then he goes over to Lugnag. Then Gloob de Brub. <laughs> I mean, these <laughs> names. Then finally he arrives in a place we know, Japan, a place that exists in the real world. Besides not having a real plot line, the tone switches up as well. The only thing that really unites these stories in this third voyage is the themes. The themes link them, and that's what we're really going to try to focus on today. Remember, themes are those universal ideas about the world, about us, something that we can carry outside of the context of the story itself. And what makes Swift so tricky is that his stories are satires, but they work in two ways. First, they attack very specific things that were going on during his day, specific people, specific practices, you know, attitudes that he thought were repugnant. But he very deliberately spoke to larger themes, and he spoke about problems that transcended any individual, any political moment. And it's not that, you know, even if he didn't, we couldn't apply to what he was saying about those days to our moment, but he did more than just talk about those things. He was speaking to readers beyond his time. 
And what I find so fascinating is that readers from around the globe, you know, Orwell and Gandhi being two. That <laughs> Those guys have gotten respect over the years. Yeah, we've quoted, but uh, many other leaders, political and otherwise, have found his ideas more relevant to their moment than to even his own. Well, I think that is true. They've grown in relevance. Uh, remember the first thing to note, though, as we go through the voyages, is they is they get more personal to the reader. You know, the satire in Voyage 1 and Voyage 2, they generally attack society as a whole. They attack political parties. They attack leadership. We love attacking those things even today. Specifically, he was attacking Robert Walpole, the, the prime minister, he was attacking the Whigs, the Tories. And these kind of attacks, you know, are something we all enjoy because everyone agrees that these people need to improve. Uh, They don't feel personal to any reader except, uh, you know, maybe the government of his day didn't approve of it very much. No, I'd say they did not. Uh, At one point after he penned the Drapier letters, a bounty was put on his head. More than one of his publishers were shut down. And part of Voyage 3, uh, what we're discussing today, the part specifically about Dublin, wasn't even published until the editions after his death. So all that to say, uh, there were things that did not go well, uh, over, go over well when they were written. You know, uh, Swift, by the time Voyage 3 came around, and, and you referenced the Drapier, Drapier letters, which we'll talk about for a minute, but... Uh, By the time he got through with those in Voyage 3, Swift really could have cared less about how offensive he came across. Um, He said on more than one occasion things to the nature that he'd rather hide in the safety of the mob than depend on, you know, that London crowd. Anyway, in Voyage 3, he hits on the same exact themes that he's been discussing in the first two, But instead of applying them to society in a broader sense, he brings it closer to home. He wants to highlight our ability to lie to ourselves that we can do because of our own ego. He wants to highlight our propensity to be cruel and oppressive at every opportunity and perpetuate our cruelty because we can justify our mean things in our own minds, either interpreting them as acts of kindness or not even thinking about them at all. He wants to highlight our own propensity towards corruption, greed, lust for power. And he does all of these things, except this time, the people are our size. It's more personal, and will it even get more personal in Voyage 4? <laughs> well, you know, he's been uh, accused in Voyage 3 of being against science and against progress and or modernity. Uh, in some ways, that is how it appears on the surface. I mean, he absolutely endorses and reveres the thinking of those that he calls the ancients, you know, the Greeks and other philosophers. So, uh, you know, there is that. But but if you think through his arguments as he makes them, I'm not sure it's progress itself that he's really against or even leadership in and of itself. Um, he was very much a high church man and a monarchist, and he's very much interested in how societies must organize themselves and how we create hierarchies and how society moves forward. But what Swift wants to know is how we do that in the interest of everyone. I mean, the problem with the systems are not the systems. The systems work well. Uh, what he's worried about is that the, the longer anyone is in the system, the more corrupt they become because we're corrupt as people. And the corruption is not in our systems. It's in our innate and in our humanity. So what to do about that? And, you know, and on a side note, I'd like to add the, uh, the corruptibility of humanity is at the core of the organization of checks and balances in our government. Uh, we borrowed some of Swift's ideas when we were writing our Constitution. You, I guess you're speaking as an American at that yes, point. Yes, at this point, yes. <laughs> well, for Swift, it came down to his Christianity. He absolutely believes we can't run from corruption. It's in us, and it expresses itself in all kinds of weird ways. Our pride is so deeply ingrained in our humanity that it corrupts our ability to even see it in ourselves. 
It plays out in our professional lives. It plays out in our political ones. Wherever we have interpersonal relationships, corruption will emerge. So as we gain power, knowledge, leadership, we also gain pride. And as we go up in the world, we are just a little bit better than those below or who don't have our power, our knowledge, our leadership. And this is what Swift illustrates with this flying island of Laputa. Beyond just literally living above everyone, in better conditions, we tend to not care anymore about those below. And with this comes a natural tendency to exploit or to tyrannize, force submission from those underneath us. We also have a tendency when we're in this state on our little flying islands to allow our minds to dwell in the abstract. I mean, we have the luxury to philosophize, to worry about the theoretical. I found it interesting that he makes the dwellers of Laputa, though, the most anxiety-ridden people that he had visited or even will visit. It's interesting. And what's also interesting is that much of the anxiety that they have is caused by things we do in the name of learning, science, art, philosophy. Any version of higher learning can produce anxiety. I know my students are always telling me that. But he points out an irony. The higher we climb into those Laputin clouds, the more likely we are to actually abuse reason itself. It's kind of an interesting idea and counterintuitive, really. So in the name of the academy... We make no sense. Another point to notice is how he connects the scientific and the artistic community. And this, of course, was widely done in that day. But the people of Laputa have two interests, music and astronomy. He makes this con connection strong between the scientific community and the political scene. And this was something I really hadn't thought or really even seen visualized until the last few years when science and politics in our world got so, you know, visibly connected. But Swift always saw these two forces as working together. He viciously attacked the Royal Academy of his day, and these attacks got personal to the point of name-calling at times. Science is political, but not just so. It's religious, it's theological, and it's on that basis that he wants to be critical. I mean, he's not critical of the actual science part itself. Well, let me say this. It was very personal, <laughs> and he got vicious in his attacks against Robert Walpole in Voyage 2. He gets ugly with his attacks on, guess who, of all people, Sir Isaac Newton and the scientific community at large in Voyage 3. So are we ready for some uh, historical context here? Well, for sure. Uh, but before you get into the crazy context of Voyage 3, and anytime you say Jonathan Swift is going to be crazy, but let me say this again because I don't want us to lose sight of this. To fully engage Swift ideas, we have to keep in mind that the satire will work on two levels. You're going to speak about specific people, and these are people that he's mad at, for sure. Specifically, Sir Isaac Newton, because he was the warden of the Mint, the president of the Royal Society, and really the public face of the scientific community. But there are other people that he's mad at, too. Uh, there are direct allegories to current events of those days, and maybe those events don't matter anymore. Well, if they do, they matter very differently. The problems he was addressing, he knew were beyond the specific problem with the currency of Ireland, although that's what he's mad at at the moment. The problems were much broader and they were deep. So Gary, as you explained to us the events of Swift's day, what we need to think about are the larger ideas. That's what's most interesting about reading the book. It's why people like Orwell and Gandhi see relevance in it. How could he have seen these problems that we and our leaders are grappling with even today? I think if we think of Voyage 3 with these larger ideas in mind, we can enjoy it. And it doesn't feel maybe so random. And maybe you might not want to skip it next time you have a chance to read it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, well, Swift is well into wrapping up his writing of Gulliver's Travels in 1723 Vanessa had died in June, and after her death, he went on a demanding four-month tour of the south and west of Ireland on horseback. 
He had already finished Voyage 1, Voyage 2, and Voyage 4. We're skipping over three at this point. (laughs) It's around January of 1724, and he's working on Voyage 3 when he returns to Dublin. He gets so angry at something that is going on that he pauses writing his third voyage and anonymously writes seven political pamphlets that today we call the Drapier Letters. In these, um, he assumes the identity of a Dublin woolen draper and goes by the initials M.B. Uh, he claims to be a weaver speaking for common tradespeople or small business owners, as we call them today. And the issues for us um, are a little confusing, but basically there was a man by the name of William Wood who paid 10,000 pounds to the mistress of King George in order to get a patent to mint coins for the American colonies as well as Ireland. It already sounds sketch. Yeah. <laughs> the whole thing is corrupt, and it's fairly complicated. Uh, it's a complicated monetary scheme that would absolutely devastate the economy of Ireland, and although Swift uh, entirely objected to this sketchy way that Wood got the government contract to mint these coins, that wasn't even the worst problem. Their larger problems were that they were overproducing the coins. And as we know, that creates inflation. But they were also of poor quality, which doesn't mean that much to us today. But the coin literally wasn't worth the copper it was made of. Um, And if that weren't enough to make Swift outraged, Sir Isaac Newton was signing off on the legitimacy of these coins while simultaneously financially gaining in the scheme as part owner of the mint. You know, all of this stunk so badly at the Swift that he just went on the warpath. And the letters in some ways were hyperbolic, but they got so many people so riled up against Woods that a nationwide boycott forced the whole scheme to be shut down. Woohoo! Yeah, he exposed the scheme for what it was. But uh, what ended up being more important than that, he placed the corruption scandal really into a, um, a larger context of Irish identity and nationalism. Uh, he basically said, Woods has a contract, but with whom? Not one Irishman was consulted with something so personal as the lives of everyone who lives here. Uh, the Irish as a people have a right to resist and refuse this currency, which is what happened. You know, the nation unified. They boycotted the currency. Then it was sent off to the Americas. And guess what the Americans did? They unified and they boycotted. <laughs> and then they left completely. <laughs> yes, it, it, it's a theme of the British Empire. <laughs> well, I'm not sure it was related to the coins, but, you know, it is kind of funny. Well, Swift would later, uh, by the way, be made a hero of Ireland for what he did. And he's considered to be the first to organize Ireland, not as a place where three different people groups live, but as a place where one single Irish identity existed. And so, you know, that's a big deal. Uh, Once the Drapier thing is over, literally months later, he goes back to finishing the last of Gulliver's Travels, Voyage Number 3. Well, he is definitely riled up, and maybe at this point while he's writing, you know, Voyage 3, he's drunk on his own political success because... Our narrator, Lemuel Gulliver, joins Commander William Robinson on a ship, and he calls the ship Hopewell. It's kind of nice. Maybe that's how he was feeling. I don't know. I'm totally speculating. But it's an interesting choice of words, so we should hope well. You know, and they go an entirely different direction than he's been the other two times. They set out into the uh, Pacific, you know, well, heading for Japan. Note that, you know, his salary this time is double- Poor Gulliver, always wanting us to know he's enriching himself and moving on up. But unfortunately for him, they are boarded by pirates. And among the pirates is a Dutchman. Gulliver appeals to the Dutchman to help him based because they're both Christians. They have this common heritage. Well, this inflames the Dutchman so much that Gulliver decides to appeal to the Japanese pirate. And let me quote Gulliver here. I was sorry to find more mercy in a heathen than in a brother Christian. The Dutchman, by the way, is the one that lowers Gulliver into a canoe and sends him adrift. So, so much for (laughs) Christian brotherhood. Uh, So, is there some sort of satire about the Dutch here? Of course there is. Everything Swift writes is a satire on something. But I bring this particular incident up because... In this voyage, Swift's entire satire does take a religious or spiritual direction. It's very understated. He doesn't talk about God. He's not going to sermonize. But we can never forget that Swift is a Christian, and he's specifically an Anglican minister.
sister. And his attack on science, as we're going to see almost immediately, is not on science or the findings per se, but on the arrogance and the corruption that science breeds. His concern is with spiritual things, uh, and it links, and it's these spiritual concerns, you know, that really link the four countries that he's going to see on the voyage. And the third island on the voyage, he talks to ghosts. And on the fourth, when he meets a collection of immortals. So these, you know, immortality and ghosts, these are religious concerns and introducing them in the discussion right here at the beginning with the Dutchman making a reference to Christianity. It's just a clue that this is the direction we're heading. Well, let me add this historical lens because it's kind of funny. Um, if you remember from studying Western civilization, the Protestant Reformation started in Germany with Martin Luther, and that's when the Protestants and the Catholics separated. But after that, a man by the name of Calvin grew to prominence. He was in Switzerland. Well, since the days of Luther and Calvin, the seat of Calvinism, to which Swit was opposed, we won't remind you, <laughs> had moved from Switzerland to Holland. Um, Anglicans were on Team Luther, so to speak. You know, while the Presbyterians that annoyed Swift no end were on Team Calvin, and that team was based out of Holland. So for people familiar with this second division of Christianity, it's kind of funny. He's basically accusing this Dutchman of not being a real Christian at all. Uh, it's a subtle but a funny dig. Well, you know... Swift never misses a chance to target anyone, and, and he can be funny, and he's definitely politically irreverent. Uh, anyway, back to the island people. Gulliver is lifted into the sky onto this flying island called Laputa. And with that word, it's an obvious wordplay by Swift, if you know anything about Latin-based languages, because I think they all have this in common, Laputa literally meaning the whore. (laughs) (laughs) So is everyone who lives on this island a whore? I mean, uh, since these are basically academic and musical elites on the island, is he calling all elites um, whores, or is this Swift calling Newton a whore? I mean, is he saying elites are selling out science for personal gain as a cover, um, you know, for corruption? Is he saying all that? Well, you know, you always love it when you can use that kind of language uh, in an academic podcast. Uh, and the answer, short answer is yes, but that's just the beginning. I mean, that's overly simplified. That's just the starting point. Laputa is beautiful, but the people there are not just disconnected. They are actually evil. Gulliver describes it as, and I quote him, the most delicious spot of ground in the world. We will, well, the lives of these elite as they live them, and I quote again, they live in the greatest plenty and magnificence. The land there is extremely fertile, covered with, quote, a coat of rich mold, 10 or 12 foot deep. It's Fertile upon fertile. Laputa actually has hanging gardens, if you read the description. It's a city of towers and heights, and that's on one side. But on the darker side, it conducts all of its affairs tyrannically from the air as it hovers over the people they govern. They never connect with the people below. Well, unless you count the connections made by the women sneaking you know, down below to have sexual relationships behind their husband's back. But besides those interactions between the flying and the island and the land, everything is oppressive. The lower people do what they're told, or rain and sunlight are withheld. The way the governed and the elite communicate is impersonal. It's disconnected. The communication between these two places is by sending and receiving messages up and down on strings. Gulliver also notes that the people of Laputa are obsessed with astronomy and stargazing. They just stare into the sky all day long. So much so that they have to hire people to slap them in the face (laughs) to have actual conversations with other humans. Oh, my. I already mentioned that the women in Laputa are so neglected by their stargazing husbands that they've actually become slutty, the court lady being the worst of them. I mean, these people are also anxiety-ridden about things that may or may not happen, hypothetical situations that they have created from possible end-of-the-world scenarios. There is constant fear of the apocalypse in this place. 
You know, you connect all of these things together, and, and what do you think that Swift is pointing out? Because in some ways they seem disconnected. But for those of us who are familiar with biblical text, and let me point out that all of Swift's readers would fall into that category, the most famous whore of all is the whore in the Bible, the whore of Babylon, and that's Laputa. She's not just a whore. She is the whore. There's the Babylon, of course, of the Old Testament, but then there's the Babylon in the New Testament. And then inside the Babylon of the New Testament, which is called the whore, there is an actual whore. So the threat of all these is that they're evil. Gary, for those of us who may not know much about the historical Babylon, give us some context so maybe we can string together all these biblical uh, or historical allusions. It sounds like I need to, so we need to take a break from... (laughs) All that you just said. Well, first and likely most obvious, we all know the Hanging Gardens of Babylon is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But we may not remember that Babylonians are the founders of astronomy. Uh, in Babylon, there was a group called the Chaldeans. And the Chaldeans specifically had no other function but to devote their entire lives to the study of stars. But one other thing we've learned from the Greek historian Herodotus about ancient Babylonian culture is that in ancient Babylon, and I will quote Herodotus here, every woman of the land once in her life had to sit in the temple of Aphrodite and have intercourse with a stranger. You know, Christy, I see the historical parallels here. So uh, Laputa is the whore of Babylon. I mean, what's the satirical connection? Well, there are a bunch of them, and we're going to try to address them. Some of them are fairly obvious, but one of Swift's criticisms, although I will say it's not the only one, but I think it's a big one, and one that's unique to this voyage, is that science has become its own religion, but it's an idolatrous religion. It's a self-serving religion. The idea of corruption at the top, of course, is not new, and his inclusion of scientists and academics is one he made clear that he believed in way back in his Tale of the Tub days, the first piece he ever wrote, but it's very much on his mind here. If you remember at this point in history, there's lots of discoveries being made. Newton is the most famous, but he's certainly not the only one. Oh, no. And lots of them were were challenging religion. Uh, The idea being that science was man's answer to religion. Uh, There was this growing belief, Swift would call it an arrogance, even, that science would eventually explain away all faith. Uh, It was, after all, the age of reason. Uh, It was the Enlightenment. Several other names Swift knew firsthand would be William Whiston and Halley as in Halley's Comet, but really uh, all of the what he would call the moderns, you know, Descartes, Thomas Hobbes, and etc. Uh, the scientific community was moving toward really what would ultimately become an atheist position. And honestly, lots of people think like this today, uh, that science is capable of explaining everything. And in those days, they literally would say, God is gravity. The idea was that um, the miracles of the Bible are nothing but scientific things happening that people didn't understand. And the world in the minds of these scientists would eventually be really reduced to the mechanics of cause and effect uh, in the natural world, and God would be edged out. And this would uh, really later involve evolve into naturalism and humanism and things that we see in many of the 19th and even um, 20th century writers as well. Exactly. I mean, he saw that coming, and this is what Swift found so arrogant. And I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but when he goes to Glubbdrib and talks to Aristotle, Aristotle acknowledges that a bunch of scientific mistakes he made. And he says, new system, now this is Swift talking, but it's the character Aristotle that he's talking to and is talking. And Aristotle says, new systems of nature were but new fashions which would vary in every age. And even those who pretend to demonstrate them from mathematical principles would flourish but a short period of time and be out of vogue when what was that that was determined. So what does this mean? It means scientists, like everyone else in the world, are self-deceived. Science can be an idol, not any different from any Old Testament statue that people might 
pray to in Babylon. In fact, worse, because at least in the old days, people worshiped things created by God and acknowledged that. But in, in the name of science, you worship abstract ideas and you really worship yourself and you delete God completely from that equation. And what's worst of all from Swiss perspective is that every so-called perfect and inviolable theory would eventually prove to be not real. So then what do you have? A big fat arrogance on nothing. For Swift to position yourself like that is to assume an arrogance designed to usurp the place of God in the universe. And once we're God, we can do anything we want. And then it's not about the science anymore. When we're God, we'll do what we want. And what do we want? Well, we do what Laputians do. We oppress people. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of ruthless. It's a ruthless criticism. It's a moral criticism. It's not scientific. For Swift, and this is even more easily seen in part four, but for Swift, reason alone is not the end all of being human. Man without God, man, even with reason, is pretty pointless. And these Laputians, with all of their scientific learning, are completely pointless. They're useless humans. In part four, he takes it even farther than being tyrannical and pointless, by the way. In the last voyage, he'll claim that man dependent on reason alone is ultimately so immortal that he can justify human extermination and find it acceptable and even useful, I would say, reasonable. <laughs> well, that got dark fast. Wow. <laughs> and I know this does get darker, uh, but the beginning of Voyage 3 is really kind of funny. I mean, I love these flappers. I know. I think this may be another dig at Newton since he was considered to be a super unfocused, maybe kind of a nutty professor kind of guy. I've read stories uh, where he'd get so engrossed in what he was doing that he'd eat his dinner for breakfast because it had just sat there all night. Uh, likely he would be uh, diagnosed with something as if he were alive today. But uh, I love this concept of people needing to be slapped to stay focused in general. Uh, today, all of us could use a flapper. I know. I think that's true. We're, we're so drawn to the abstract through our digital devices that we can't focus on anything. And I really love this description as I quote them. Their heads were all reclined either to the right or to the left. One of their eyes turned inward, the other directly up to the zenith. Their outward garments were adorned with the figures of suns, moons, and stars interwoven with those of fiddles, flutes, harps, trumpets, guitars, harpsichords, and many other instruments of music unknown to us in Europe. I observed here and there many in the habit of servants with a blown bladder, flaccid like a flail to the end of a short stick, which they carried in their hands. In each bladder was a small quantity of dried peas or little pebbles. With these bladders, they now and then flapped the mouths and ears of those who stood near them, of which practice I could not conceive the meaning. Uh, it, it seems the minds of these people are so taken up with intense speculations that they neither can speak nor attend to the discourses of others without being roused by some eternal taxation upon the organs of speech and hearing for which these persons who are able to afford it always keep a flapper in their family. <laughs> I mean, this is just great. And, and the analogy can extend in so many directions. I mean, how many of us need a flapper to carry on an uninterrupted dinner conversation? I today? know, because our heads are tilted downwards. Yes. <laughs> You know, uh, our minds or our attention spans could use a good slap in the face every couple of minutes. Uh, you, we're all not just seeing it, but we've needed it done. Well, I think that's true. And, and I love how he points out that we are focused on speculations. We're not even focused on things that are real. And this really is the problem with these people who live in luxury, literally in the clouds. The elite are not focused on real life. Problems affecting most people don't affect them. They literally are above it. The direct analogy, of course, is the court of King George, but the metaphor can extend to any group of elite people because every place is run by a group of these so-called elites, a combination of the scientific, the artistic community, the political community. They're all melded into one Laputian society in the sky. 
In Laputa, the elite are so disconnected from those below that the subjects in Legato literally send up their petitions on scraps of paper on strings. Sometimes they send up wine and victual, which seems awfully close in my mind to a reference of communion, suggesting a worshipful as well as subservient relationship between the people below and the people above. Why would the lower people send up bread and wine to the higher ups if they weren't kind of expressing some sort of worship? So the primary attack on these people, the court of King George, the elite of any era, however you want to label them, is that their arrogance and total dependence on their own ability to reason keeps them from doing anything that is practical or even empathetic. This elitism breeds a loss of moral feeling as well as poor life skills in doing anything that's practical or meaningful. It breeds instead a total investment of time, energy, and intellect on pointless theoretical things. I mean, they have calculations to signify how long before the planet is going to be totally destroyed. In fact, they're so worried about the end of the world, and I quote, they can neither sleep quietly in their beds or have any relish for the common pleasure or amusement of life. When they meet an acquaintance in the morning, the first question is about the sun's health and what hopes they have to avoid the stroke of the approaching comet. <laughs> oh, man. Well, they make all these precise mathematical calculations, but the problem is they have to speculate on so many uh, unknowable variables you know nothing will ever come close to being anything but complete guesses for these people and and that's the problem um anyone who gets into projections uh into the future this will occur and the you know the numbers are always based on guesses and we see this all the time uh, although if you were to watch american tv at least you never know that uh, the scientific and precise sounding numbers are based on guesses well, I know we see it today in so many ways, but in the case of the Laputians, watching all these projected numbers and seeing them add up makes them constantly anxious and they live with great anxiety. But at the same time, ironically, what appears to be almost thoughtlessness as they oppress the people under them without even thinking about them. Well, you know, I find it very interesting, by the way, um, that, that Gulliver cannot climb any social ladder with the Laputians. Um, it's really the only society that he can't integrate into, and uh, he's an outsider the entire time. Uh, they're not impressed with his language learning abilities or anything he has to say. No one in Laputa talks to him uh, to the point that really he just leaves, and he finds him totally disagreeable. And he goes down to Ball and the Barbie, a place theoretically governed by the Laputians, although the Laputians never come down to see it. Yes, and supposedly, you know, Ball and the Barbie represents Ireland, and the method they use to oppress them is technology. The technology of that day, though, was the lodestone. But what is a lodestone, Gary? I, I bet some people might. might be surprised to know it's actually a real thing not something swift made up it is you know again this is swift making fun of people's bull malarkey at this point <laughs> everyone at this point in time was mesmerized with these armed lodestones and both queen anne and king george iii had them and uh they are stones that are naturally and permanently magnetic they could attract metal, and they seemed almost magical in the time. And the people during the 18th century were very fascinated with them, and today most of them would just be in museums. Well, in this case, the lodestone would actually move the flying island of Laputa by magnetism anywhere it wanted to go so that it could cover any part of Balba, Balba Barbie it wanted. It was their means of controlling it. Well... Let me point out, uh, since the beginning of time, every new technology has been leveraged by those who had it to oppress those who didn't. I mean, this is absolutely a theme in all of human history. And I will guarantee you from here on out that things are not going to change. I mean, every technological advance will be used to control and oppress people. It's just as consistent as any other law of nature, you know. Uh, but let's look at how SWIFT makes it work in this case. Sure. Well, you know, the island rises and falls and moves around, hovering over any section of Balna Barbie at once. It keeps rain from falling in specific places if it wants to. It controls the sunlight if it wants to. The only thing that keeps the king from just going nuts worse than he already is, 
is that ironically, his ministers all own property and profit from Baal Benar. That's where their fortunes come that they spend up in Lapusha. Even though they don't live there, that's where their interests are. So it's in their interest to take care of things down below to some extent. But I will say this is the interesting section where the king at one point threatens Lindalino, supposedly Dublin. They rebel and he wants to crush them. And what he finds out that is he tries to crush them with the island and the adamant, as he calls it, that makes the flying island move around and fall, that, that he would destroy himself. So they do have an interdependent relationship, and he ends up having to respect that for his own survival. It's an obvious and interesting claim for leaders. Hmm. You know, well, of course, he's pointing out um, that if the elite destroy the working people, eventually they destroy themselves. But yes, let's circle back to the uselessness and circular thinking of the scientific community, because Swift isn't done making fun of them. Once he leaves Laputa, there's more. Oh, no, he, he never lets up. On Balnabarbi, he introduces the Grand Academy of Legato by the way of a former governor named Lord Minotti. And this lord is rejected by the academy. The Grand Academy does not allow for diversity of thought. Everyone must have the same thoughts. They all have to agree. And if they don't, they're not being scientific. And it's a funny satirical criticism because, you know, they do this all in the name of free thinking. They free thinkly the same way. But Lord Minuti has basically been exiled because he doesn't agree. And his waves are considered not progressive. And in this land, we have to have conformity of all things. Event, what we see here basically is this is a totalitarian state. It's a police state. It's oppressive. And the oppression comes in large part in the name of science. The science is always right, except the reader will see through Gulliver's eyes and his understanding that the science is never right. And not only that. Their use of science is either corrupt or totally irrelevant to the improvement of people's lives. I mean, they have a, quote, modern way of farming, but it never produces anything. People walk around hungry. There's a modern way of living, but it's ill-contrived and nothing works. And the one guy who does allow to do things the old way is the only guy uh, eating, but he's a laughingstock. He's considered unprogressive. And we're meant to see the irony in that. Just like in Laputa, here the academy has all kinds of out-of-touch thinking for all kinds of specialized and speculative absurdities. They're not interested in the stars, but they have other concoctions that they're interested in. Of course, the academy is a direct satire on the Royal Academy, which Newton was president. But in this case, it's called the academy. Academy of Legato, and it is a complete intellectual farce. You know what? Sir Isaac Newton's taken a beating (laughs) in Voyage 3. you get when you're at the top. I guess. You know, uh, the Academy of Legato, uh, the esteemed institution of higher learning, is fully engaged in projects that sound great, you know, except they don't actually work. They are spending years and begging for money trying to extract, I love this, trying to extract sunbeams out of a cucumber. Because this will create light and, and energy at a reasonable rate, uh, you know. Except in the meantime, people are starving, and uh, there's another guy trying to take human excrement and return it to food. <laughs> I mean, that's just a stinky idea. I mean, the goals are noble. Well, you know, and there's one working with spiders to create colored thread, and uh, another experimenting on dogs to the point that one dies in a really gruesome fashion. And you know, what is the point of all of this? Uh, They have all these glamorous ideas, but no short-term real solutions to the problems of real life. Exactly. And and the point of it is to make fun of science. It's all done in the name of science. Although you have to understand, science is being used in the broadest of terms. In Swift's day, that word was basically, you know, in from what I can see, it's basically all academic pursuits, liberal arts included, or go by this de- designation because some of these experiments are sh- social experiments and some of them are linguistic, res- you know, involving the reduction of language. Uh, the political science ones are, are really fabulous. I mean, the Academy has, I like this one, has this 
great idea to solve extremism. We might can use this today. I really like this idea. So the idea is you take 100 leaders of each party and pair them up according to members of the other party that have the same size of their heads. And then you slice all of their heads open, cut their brains out, and attach half of the brain from one party to half of the brain to the other. And then, uh, and then the two half brains, and I quote, are being left to debate the matter between themselves within the space of one skull would soon come to a good understanding and produce that moderation as well as regularity of thinking so much to be wished for in the heads of those who imagine they come into the world only to watch and govern its motion. Of course, that's ridiculous. <laughs> he is talking about brain transplants. You know? He's talking about goofiness. I don't know. Well, don't overlook the taxing scheme um, either. The idea, be- idea being that we uh, tax men according to their self-proclaimed sexiness. <laughs> Uh, Here's a quote. The highest tax was upon men who are the greatest favorites of the other sex, and the assessments according to the number and natures of the favors they have received for which they are allowed to be their own vouchers. (laughs) So they self-confess. Yes. So in other words, you know, Barney Stinson from How I Met Your Mother would be paying quite a bit of taxes (laughs) because if you haven't watched the show, he brags on his sexual prowess, and that's what they were taxing on in (laughs) Voyage 3. Well, by the end of this diatribe on on, a ca- on the Academy in all of its forms, uh, you know, Swift is just getting silly. I mean, that's a good example. There are lots of more examples, and, and they all are funny. But it comes down, again, to being blind to your own stupidity because you're biased through your arrogance. He never gets far from that. When he leaves Legato, he's going to go to Maldonado, and he visits glub dub drib where all the ghosts are and then he visits this place called Lugnag before he heads home via Japan again. It's a lot of crazy city names <laughs> right know. there. You know, by the way, um, I know we don't have time or even interest into looking at each individual legato experiment, um, but as I research these, what I find out uh, is that uh, were, some of them were actually hyperbolic representations of actual experiments that were actually being funded by the Royal Academy. Uh, you know, this is attacking academia at large, and really that applies, or it can apply to academia today from time to time. And somebody will run a story in the media about some crazy experiment the government is funding, and, you know, it applies to science, but it really applies to much more. You know, he's making targeted fun at leadership in general and things they were actually doing that he found totally pointless and the general tendency to fund things for corrupt reasons, really instead of funding them for the general good. Well, he makes his point. And, and when he leaves Legato and speaks with the ghost of Glub Dub Drib, he finds that corruption has always been present. And it's something that's just part of our human experience. Even those ancients that he so vehemently defends, we will see, were full of corruption. And England at that time, um, as America, the world stage at large today, has this tension constantly going on between the, the moderns and the ancients, or we may call it, you know, it could be conservatives versus progressives. I mean, do we overhaul everything for a new way of doing things, or do we keep doing things the way they've always been done? It's an age-old argument, and uh, when we see a fence and we don't see the point of it, do we tear it down and then see what happens, or do we leave it up and ask why someone would want to put that fence there to begin with? Well, of course, you know, Swift very adamantly sides with the ancients. He's on team leave the fence there. <laughs> <laughs> no, very much so. Yeah, he creates his own little battle and glubbed up drib between the ancients and the moderns, uh, as, they call, uh, as they're called back from the dead. And then after he watches people literally... <laughs> Lick the dust before his majesty's footstool, he says this, and I quote, I have seen a great lord with his mouth so crammed that when he had crept to the proper distance from the throne, he was not able to speak a word. Gulliver uh, then does today what we say you're, he calls kissing someone's behind. I mean, it's a <laughs> creepy world, but it's just also just ridiculous. Well, it is creepy and it is ridiculous. And, and the voyage culminates with his discovery of this race of immortal people. He thinks at first that people who never die would be the greatest things in the world. It would be an aspiration for us all. 
except when he learns that strug brugs, that's what they're called, at 90 lose their teeth and hair. They have at that age no distinction of taste, but eat and drink whatever they can get without relish or appetite. They lose their memory. They lose their zeph for life. At, at the end of it, Gulliver concludes, my keen appetite for perpetuity of life was much abated. <laughs> What a great way to say I, I got over it. Yes. You know, Voyage 3 begins in the clouds and ends with this kind of note of despair, a recognition of our own inevitable mortality. I mean, we can't beat Mother Nature. Gulliver's self-esteem takes a hit here, too, because he receives no name anywhere on this voyage. He's a non-entity for pretty much the entire trip. Everything here is pretty much pointless. Society means nothing. Society does nothing. Society has no empathy or expressed concern for anyone or anything. Everything is pointless, which brings us back to one final dig on religion and the Dutch. (laughs) (laughs) He's on this Dutch ship. It's a requirement for every European leaving Japan that he trample on a crucifix, or that would be a cross, as a sign of disrespect. Well, the Dutch, who are Calvinists, have no problem trampling on the cross. Gulliver, who's claiming to be Dutch, is supposed to do this, but he's appalled because he's not about to dishonor the symbol of his faith. He asks the emperor if he can be excused, to which the emperor responds that he's the first of his countrymen who ever made any scruple on this point, and therefore he began to doubt whether he was a real Hollander or not but rather suspected he must be a Christian. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, this is funny because obviously readers would know all Protestants are Christians, and the difference uh, is the Anglicans and Catholics value uh, traditions and authority of the Church, where the the Dutch Calvinists and the Presbyterians and today the Baptists and non-denominational Christians would be in this group, uh, you know, these who value individual interpretation. Uh, To sacred texts as really being of the highest value. Well, for Gulliver, Anglican Christianity is worth risking getting in trouble with with this sea captain. So is he saying that uh, Dutch Calvinism is one step away from scientific arrogance? He absolutely is, and I say this for this reason. Remember when we pointed out that for Swift, elevating oneself and one's understanding of the world is pride that leads to an idolatry in oneself and ultimately an apathy towards others? Well, for him, this starts at this point of doctrinal difference. He finds it important. You know, for Swift, this isn't trivial like breaking an egg. An individual claiming, and he alone is the interpreter of sacred text above tradition and above the church itself, he thinks that's one step towards atheism. If I can pick and choose what parts of sacred text I believe, then the whole thing is a construct that I can build and tear down at will, which we will see in part four is ultimately what happens to Gulliver. By the end of Voyage 4, Gulliver is an atheist, but he's also a crazy person. Well, that's something to look forward to. Well, actually it is. Part four with the Yahoos and the Winhams is the second most famous voyage after Lilliput. It's dark. It's deep. It's the finale. So come back next week and we'll see where Swift drops us off. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this discussion of Voyage 3 and all the satire and comedy It's kind of crazy for sure. Um, Again, as always, if you are a teacher, please feel free to use our free listening guides for your classroom instruction. Um, If you're a friend supporter, go to our website, get a mug, a t-shirt, stickers for a friend. But most importantly, please share an episode with a friend. When you share, we grow. Thank you. Peace out. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.